the National Archives podcast series, Alcohol Consumption in Historical Perspective, presented by Philip Withington. So I'm first and foremost a social historian of early modern England, and this paper is based on research and thinking funded by the ESRC through their research fellowship scheme. And the research was always intended to shed some kind of perspective on contemporary debates about the role of intoxicants, as I prefer to call them, uh, rather than drugs, in modern Western societies uh, from an early modern perspective. The specific, specific issue of alcohol consumption, especially in public settings, was commissioned, as, as Pat was saying, by a parliamentary select committee last year. And it transpires that the clerk of the committee as a historian was keen to include an historical perspective, which apparently is quite rare. Uh, he contacted me about the possibility of a report in my capacity as the convener of a network on intoxicants and intoxication in historical and cultural perspective, which I'd established along with Dr. Angela McShane at the uh, VNA with money from my research fellowship grant. Um, on the basis of that invitation, the network submitted uh, three reports, and two of the network attended the committee as expert witnesses. Um, I unfortunately couldn't attend the meeting myself. And the official report was published last month. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Um, it I think it's available in the public domain. So the main part of this paper offers um, a case study of how the past can contextualise contemporary discussion and um, policy making. It doesn't um, discuss um, particular archival sources in any detail, as the other papers have done, though I'm happy to do that um, in questions if that's required. So what I'm going to do basically is outline fluctuations in drinking habits since the middle of the 16th century, um, think about the set of interrelated factors which have shaped those habits over the previous four and a half centuries, uh, suggest some of the most obvious historical continuities and identify two of the fundamental discontinuities characterising the current situation. Um, that's what I hope to achieve in this paper. And before starting the substantive discussion, I thought it'd be worth offering two uh, very obvious observations about mobilising um, historical expertise uh, for practical contemporary purposes based in part on my own experiences today. Um, the first of these is strategic. Um, although impact, to use the contemporary parlance, um, comes in many shapes and forms, I think most historians are much more likely to be heard if they are organised as a group. And by using some of the money from the research fellowship to organise the um, intoxicants and intoxication network, um, we managed to pull a range of skills and perspectives far in advance of anything that I could have offered on my own. Um, it's enabled scholars and practitioners as well to learn from each other over time. And unless you happen to be David Starkey or Simon Sharma, heaven forbid, um, it is also much more visible than individual historians uh, working alone. Thus, when the Parliamentary Select Committee commissioned the report, it was possible to suggest a number of papers by network participants, um, a literary historian, a historical geographer, and a social psychologist, as, as well as, as early modern historians, to provide um, perspectives. And that was quite useful, I think. The second observation uh, was a bit more nebulous, really. Uh, this tension between um, historical research and analysis and the discursive hurly-burly, I'm going to say that again because I like the phrase, discursive hurly-burly of politics and media. On the one hand, 
I think that the perfectly legitimate and important desire to draw out the relevance of the past to the present should not be confused with writing presentist, let alone teleological or anachronistic history. The past should be allowed to speak on its own terms and the relationship between then and now and time over time is in truth extremely difficult to fathom. On the other hand, contemporary public discourse is a political and contingent process, obviously. Uh, there are a host of infrastructural, ideological and personal factors influencing what is heard and by whom. Although I haven't had um, time to do it yet, it would be very interesting, for example, to consider systematically the points from the historical reports as we made them and what was actually picked up by the politicians, civil servants and journalists um, who acted upon them or, or brought them together. Okay, so <clears throat> first thing first is patterns in consumption. So the basic pattern of alcohol consumption since the 18th century is well established and involves a gradual decline per capita from around 1700 until the 1960s since when levels have increased um, significantly. This focus on the post-1700 period makes sense in terms of relatively reliable taxation and excise records, though smuggling and illicit and or domestic production and consumption pose significant analytical problems. But it does mean, however, uh, that the intriguing resonance between early modern and contemporary consumption can be missed. The hundred years after 1550 saw, in fact, both the commercialisation of old-world commodities, by which I mean um, wine, ale, beer primarily, and the initial influx of new-world substances into Europe, in particular tobacco. And what you see is the, the formation of the modern market in intoxicants in this early modern period before um, the 18th century. And these developments include, as you can see, the expansion and restructuring of the domestic beer-brewing industry. Um, and the production of beer in London rose from an estimated 51 million litres per annum in 1574, 51 million in 1574, to 146 million litres by 1600. Uh, beer was a Dutch import, and the establishment of domestic production was in large part due to the influx of Protestant refugees to urban areas during the 16th century. In the meantime, there's a proliferation of alehouses in both urban and rural areas, which by the 1620s had provoked a systematic regulatory response from not only national but also local governors that centred on licensing. And the type and amount of beverages available in alehouses is difficult to ascertain. So too is the cause of their proliferation i.e. whether it was the Puritan desire to regulate that led to established houses being listed and licensed for the first time, or whether there was a genuine increase in the number of retailing outlets. Nevertheless, as far as we can tell from the records, um, there does seem to have been a significant rise. And the period also saw <coughs> excuse me, a significant, this is much less considered by historians, um, especially social historians, so a significant increase in wine imports, orchestrated primarily again by Dutch merchants, acting as trading brokers between southern and northwestern Europe. And they widened the market for French wines and ensured more efficient means of distribution. And early estimates from the port books, um, Stevenson, Dan Exeter has done some work on this, and I'm doing some work as well, 
um, suggests that the quantities of wine, the port books are actually in the, the National Archives, great resource for movement of goods and so on. The quantities of wine imported in the first four decades of the 17th century were, um, amounted to the highest per capita that England had witnessed until the present day. And this is the more so because consumption was ostensibly limited to um, social elites. And this trend was brought to an end by the upheavals of the civil and European wars after 1640. And the fourth development, um, the introduction of tobacco, became a commodity of genuine mass consumption from the later 1620s, when production and supply from the American colonies was guaranteed by monopoly and quite harsh um, regulation against domestic um, cultivation, and the price per ounce became affordable. So in the 100 years um, after um, 1650, Jordan Goodman suggests that Europeans took to soft drugs, and this is where you have a much um, more extensive literature on the subject. Coffee, tea and chocolate, also intoxicants obviously, were all successfully introduced into the domestic diet and over time began to supplement the role of beer and ale as primary popular staples. And the period also saw the beginning of the opium trade, and more notably at this stage, the invention of new artificial spirits, aquavitas, ostensibly for medicinal and military purposes and subsequently for popular consumption. And the so-called gin craze that fled up intermittently from the 1630s to the 1650s can deflect from the more general trend in the decline, or at least stabilisation, in levels of alcoholic consumption due to the increasing availability of alternative drinks and their absorption into existing patterns of consumption and sociability. So alcohol consumption continued to fall per head during what used to be known as the Industrial Revolution, um, a decline usually linked to a dramatic fall in living standards for large sections of the population. And it's only since, what, 1957, in fact, that it's begun to be reversed. And it's the immediate juxtaposition between current habits and recollections of a temperate pre-1960s Britain that makes idealised at that, that makes perhaps current drinking habits seem especially disconcerting to some commentators. And this is the more so, obviously, given the plethora of other intoxicants now available for consumption. Even so, it's well to remember that in 2002, the UK had the 14th highest level of alcohol consumption per head in Europe, which is lower than France, Germany, Portugal, Spain, and even Switzerland. And it's also striking that the post-industrial era seems to have returned to the kinds of trends in the early modern period, that 1550-1650 bit that I began this little section with. Increased consumption, especially conspicuous and public consumption among visible sections of the population, facilitated by powerful business organisations that are extremely competent at managing their relationship with political authority. We can look at this now. So clearly to generalise about the causes of these trends, especially over such a long period of time, and this is the decision we reached when we were doing the report, would have been disingenuous and probably misleading. Instead, it seemed to make more sense to us to identify the combination of factors which have influenced English drinking habits over the past 450 years. And these factors provide an explanatory framework for understanding modern drinking practices that can be traced back to the era 1550 to 1750. And the early modern period that this, this defines um, witness, as you can see, the commercialisation of English and European beverages and their more efficient production um, and um, provisioning trade, this influx of new world um, or colonial groceries, as they're called, and their assimilation into um, English and European tastes, the establishment of global trading networks, um, the simultaneous economic and social developments which meant a significant proportion of the populace could choose to spend more 
on income and time on drinking what Van de Vries has called the industrious as opposed to the industrial revolution. Um, And the ability of corporate institutions, for example, brewing guilds and colonial enterprises like the Virginia Company and most famously the East India Company, to exert political pressure locally and nationally. The simultaneous concern of the state um, through the control of licensing, import duties and taxation um, um, to exploit the expanding trade and markets that all of the above developments represented. And And at the same time, the concern of the state, or at least bodies and groups able to colonize it, to regulate and police consumption. This idea of state regulation. Just to carry the list on a bit longer, obviously we can't really go into too much detail on the individual points. You have the adaptation of patterns and conventions of sociability by which drinks were consumed and which encouraged the increase in demand for alcoholic and other beverages. You have related developments in material and spatial culture, um, the um, artefacts and buildings and sites of, of consumption. The close association between um, the consumption of intoxicants and new forms of cultural production, the aesthetics of intoxication, um, and the different genres within which the aesthetic is represented. The emergence of moral movements seeking to limit and reform drinking habits, uh, be they Puritan and purely defined, the reformation of manners, um, as it went through from the mid-16th uh, century to the Society of the Reformation of Manners uh, from 1691, and then the various temperament movements into the later 18th and 19th centuries, and the concurrent development of media technology, in the first instance print, and the public sphere through which um, these issues <coughs> and problems are discussed. So a whole bundle of factors which can be traced from the 16th century, which essentially provide the context for the situation we find ourselves in today, with all these different interests and technologies um, and motivations and forms of sociability sort of jostling for attention. And what we can think about really is comprehending those implications for the macro level and the micro level. At the macro level, to address this issue properly, you need to take into account the political economics of drinking, in particular the relationship between big business, domestic and or global, and the state, and the balance between fiscal exploitation and social regulation. You have to think about the economics of production and distribution, including the provision of alternative or complementary commodities and the purchasing power or taste of consumers. You have to think about the energy, influence and persuasiveness of reformatory bodies, be they religious or increasingly secular and uh, scientific. And you have to think about prevailing stereotypes which develop around worthy behaviour and the appropriation of those values by different social groups. And worth here would refer not simply to rational, civil or moral behaviour, but also behaviour perceived as modish, fashionable, cool, etc., sweet, among different peer groups and, and um, cultures. At the micro level, you have to think about, again, within this historical context, the spatial dynamics and material culture of sociability in terms of its sites, organisation, layout, size, artefacts and integration of segregation within the wider environment. You can think about the temporality of drinking 
in terms of rituals of the day. <coughs> Before the introduction of tea and other soft drinks, including clean water, alcohol was a source of daily hourly nourishment, as well as exceptional release, for example. And now it demarcates time in the short and long term, the cocktail hour, happy hour, weekend binge, etc., and the fundamental boundary between childhood and adult, adulthood on a, on a wider scale as perceived by youths um, in relationship to authority. And perhaps most importantly, and this was the one we, we dwelt on, um, the codes, conventions and rituals that tacitly or explicitly guide behaviour of individuals and groups and the knowledge and learned behaviour that this requires the skills to conform to these um, conventions and codes and the possibilities of social distinction inclusion and exclusion that they raise. And this relates finally to the perceived functions and acceptability of different kinds of drinking and the likely sociology of particular kinds of drinking company, which we understood as legitimacy. For example, a wine tasting or civic dinner or police Christmas party compared to an illicit rave on a common somewhere in Derbyshire. (laughs) Which I've never been to. These are the factors which we thought a serious and detailed investigation into the history of alcohol consumption and its relationship to the present would need to consider. (laughs) And some factors are clearly easier to approach empirically than others and indeed have been approached quite a lot. Though so long as scholars are willing to be interdisciplinary and perhaps collaborative, there is no reason that ostensibly more elusive factors such as the culture and sociology of drinking cannot be considered historically too. So to that end, you have guild, taxation, and other governmental records generated both nationally and locally um, as well-known sources which can be used to good effect by historians since Peter Clark, Keith Rison, um, and the many historians who now work on drinking. Equally important are literary texts. I know we're in an archive, but I think literary texts are significant here, especially the genres of popular culture, and descriptive legal records, some of which um, the previous papers were talking about, um, or certainly the first one, Depositional material and reports that describe, often in some detail, particular instances of drinking. And these, are, these can be found in any kind of legal deposition. The best example of um, sociability in a coffee house, I found, for example, from the 1670s, was in the Chancery Court deposition, something entirely unrelated. It was a dispute over a bond, but it happened to have this very detailed description of how people sat and talked in a, in a London coffee house in 1672. Um, so it's all over the place uh, once you get into those legal archives. So having r- rushed through the explanatory framework um, for fluctuations in drinking habits and suggested the macro and micro and their interaction as ways to appreciate um, that um, developments over time, I want to just finish with um, two continuities, I think, between present and past and two discontinuities. Um, this comes as much actually from discussions within the network as it does from my own research on the early modern period. And the first of the um, continuities is the problem of affluence. Um, the most authoritative social history of English drinking currently available, um, mostly on work on the 18th and 19th century, emphasises that phases of excessive and antisocial behaviour and or heightened moral anxiety have usually occurred in times of what can be regarded as accentuated and asymmetrical affluence, asymmetrical being the key term. This is an important insight borne out by evidence from the early modern period. There's sometimes a tendency to regard the consumption of alcohol in the past, especially in its excessive forms, 
as social and psychological dependency, i.e. drunkenness as a means of consolation and escape for the poor and desperate. This is especially the case when the world, word sorry, of social reformers and moralists is taken as social reality, and or when historians look to use drinking as a means of distinguishing b- between elite and popular culture. Clearly there are and always have been strong correlations between drunkenness and any other kind of drug dependency and social deprivation. However, the most significant rises in alcohol consumption since 1550 have invariably been related to proportional increases in wealth for significant sections of the population. Conspicuous consumption is driven by wealth, not poverty. And this has been in conjunction with cultural developments that make consumption, including excessive consumption, desirable and normative, especially, usually, for youth groups. The second continuity is governmental responses. Even before the 16th century, governmental responses have reflected tensions between the desire to exploit drinking practices fiscally and a concern to regulate what they were perceived to be at any given moment in terms of their moral and social implications. Either way, the impact has always been significant, though not always in the way intended. At the intersection of these impulses has been the power to tax and to licence. Supplementary policies have also followed a distinct pattern over time, focusing on the timing of consumption and retail, the quantities sold or drunk, and the venues at which retail could take place and the strength of drinks through control of ingredients in recipes. The history of state action has been clouded by the competing political influences of reformatory and business interests. and has also been hindered by the difficulty of shaping drinking cultures on the ground and tarnished by degrees of hypocrisy, which again since the 16th century have seen certain social groups targeted, in particular youth and the lower orders, while often excessive professional and elite drinking remains sanctioned and condoned. That goes back to the point about affluence, obviously. A further problem has been the implementation of legislation that conflicts with popular conceptions of legitimacy and equity. So those are two um, areas of continuity. The discontinuities would include two features of the contemporary situation which distinguish the the present um, from the past. And both developments are the product of complex and ongoing historical processes. And most people, possibly apart from Michel Foucault, would regard them as social and political achievements. However, both bring new pressures to bear on the micro and macro dynamics of drinking habits. And the first of these is the emergence of the biomedical state. The medical industry now has the technology, knowledge and incentives, especially commercial, to identify and treat many of the biological consequences of alcoholic consumption. And this is in definite contrast to previous centuries, where medicine was more likely to use alcohol as a treatment rather than cure its related maladies, and when the primary impact of medical practitioners was, it seems, to create, legitimise and popularise new kinds of intoxicants. Tobacco in the 17th century, opium in the 18th century, cocaine in the 19th century, heroin in the 20th century. The welfare state is expected to ensure the provision of medical technology, knowledge and products for the populace at large. And this is true in terms of immediate provision, for example, Friday, Saturday nights in A&E, and long-term treatments for various alcohol-related and alcohol-specific ailments. This again marks a significant discontinuity with the past and is likely to have important and possibly unforeseen circumstances. Since the 16th century, at least, alcohol and other intoxicants have been a crucial source of revenue for the state, and the very real possibility of successfully treating the consequences of consumption and the cost that this involves threatens to reduce the public profitability of intoxication. 
I think this is what the health committee is actually grappling with at the moment, which is why they have this investigation. This is the more so as people enjoy the benefits of medical treatment and so live and drink for longer. Responsibility for behaviour in general and the personal health in particular has, to lesser or greater degrees, shifted from the individual person, or more accurately families and communities of individuals, to the welfare state. And the state feels obliged to consider the health of the nation and its subjects, albeit this kind of discourse can be traced back to the 17th century. And the culture of self-help and self-discipline, which by necessity shaped practices of consumption before the mid-20th century, have been dissipated. So that's one kind of new set of issues which distinguish, I think, the present from um, the, the modern past. The second is gender and drinking. One of the recurring characteristics to emerge from the ESRC network on intoxicants and intoxication in historical and cultural perspective, it was also anthropologists and so on, as well as simply historians involved, is that intoxication has traditionally been the preserve of males. Whatever their social and cultural standing, with the Ugandan youths, <coughs> medieval knights, the Victorian urban poor, 20th century postmodernists, 16th century wits, Somali village elders, mm-hmm. drinking, especially to excess, has been a masculine preserve. And what is striking about current trends in Britain is that women are now engaging many of the same drinking practices as men and consuming similar, if not more, amounts of alcohol in the process. The significance of this discontinuity is the more apparent because it follows a relatively long period of time in which the possibility of respectable females drinking in public, especially women alone or accompanied only by other women, was severely circumscribed. Now, this period of increased differentiation between masculine and feminine behaviour, for example, between 1750 and 1950, coincides with the main phases of decline in alcohol consumption is clearly suggestive. Yet even before the development of the modern tem- family template, in which I did at least the feminine household became a domestic and private retreat from the trailed veils of work and public life, honest women, and honest as in inverted commas, did not engage in the kind of sociability expected of men. Increased female consumption of alcohol may go some way to explain the increases in general consumption since the 1960s, since half the population was tacitly um, barred from drinking before then, in a very simplistic, crude sense. Whatever the ultimate limits of gender equality in contemporary Britain, there can be no doubt that, from a historical perspective, there has been a revolution in gender relations. Women now attend university like men, apply for many of the same jobs as men, have disposable incomes like men, and it seems to participate in the same kinds of leisure culture as men if surveys emphasising binge Britain are to be believed, and I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) believe those. The full implications of this transformation do not seem to be properly understood, but they are certainly fundamental to the current situation. So by way of conclusion, the official recommendation of the Parliamentary Select Committee report, as far as I've been able to tell, I've only skimmed it, was that the price of alcohol should be raised in order to discourage excessive consumption. This, I suppose, is one take on the long-term continuity of asymmetrical affluence, though not necessarily the fair or accurate one. However, it fails to grapple with other factors, such as the cultural conditions that inform drinking practices at the micro-level, though as one civil servant wondered, how can government intrude in those realms? And it completely fails to consider critically the role of the biomedical state in creating and sustaining the conditions within which alcohol-related issues are increasingly considered and dealt with and turned into problems. I don't want to finish on a cheap point, but it seems inevitable that there will always be a tension between historical approaches that treat government as part of the situation and political bodies bodies of authority that see government and its incorporated agencies as resolving the problem. And that's it. This event was recorded live as part of the Using Archival Sources to Inform Contemporary Policy Debates Conference 
on the 16th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.